Well, um, it is so good to be here, and what a privilege um, to bring us all God's word this morning. Um, Our text for this morning is Matthew 27. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26. If you have your Bibles, please go there. Um, If you do not have a Bible, the Bible in front of you in the pew is there and available for you. And in fact, if you don't have a Bible, we always say, please take that with you. Uh, We would love for that to be a gift from us to you. In that Bible, it's going to be on page 833, find the big number 27. And we're going to start there in just a minute. Before we get into this, I think it'll be helpful for us just to wrap our minds around a couple of the themes that Matthew has been kind of bringing forward for us to consider as we read through his book. And that is the, the identity of Christ. And he, is, he has helped us to see and explain to us a couple of different truths about Christ that are going to be important for us to remember as we come to the, rapidly come to the closing of his book. And so the first one I just want to remind us of is from the very beginning, we learned that Jesus was Emmanuel. He was and is God with us. He is also the king from the line of David. In fact, if you start the book of Matthew and you're wondering why you have to go through a whole bunch of names, that's one of the things that Matthew is doing with that just to prove to us, look, Jesus is in the line of David. He is the promised king that David was promised before he attempted to build the temple and God said, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And that is being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is also, as Peter would declare, the Holy One of God, the Messiah. And finally, as we've seen in the past few weeks, we have seen that Jesus is the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. Though he is the Messiah, he is also the one who would suffer and die. And so those things are important for us because as we look at the text now, and honestly, we could be completely lost in this text because Jesus is, is hardly says a word. And in fact, it seems like everything is happening around Jesus and, and he is just standing by and waiting. So we need to remember that, that this is who Matthew has shown us Jesus to be. And he is undergoing severe injustice at this time. And so let us, uh, as we get into the text this morning, let me read it for us and then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. Matthew 27, beginning in verse one. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. 
Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that, he, that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father God, your word says in Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight and let all of us as we meditate on this scripture, may our meditation be acceptable in your sight. For Father, you are our rock, you are our redeemer. We have none beside you. Be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the big idea that I want us to get from this text this morning is a song lyric. And trust me, I, I, it's, not, it's not a song lyric for no reason. There's, there's good reason for it. We'll get to it. But it's this. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we're going to see that this morning. And don't be alarmed at what I'm about to say to you. But we're going to see it in four scenes and in six responses to sin. That sounds like it could be very long. I've already told Nathan to come up here and poke me if I'm too long, so we'll, we'll work with that. But in four scenes, 
and six responses to sin. And so the four scenes are this. We see first in verses one through two, the Sanhedrin convene. Uh, They have a meeting. Then we see the betrayers end in verses three through 10. We see an interaction with the governor and the king in 11 through 14. And finally, we see the wicked crowd in 15 through 26. But first, let's look at verses one and two. The Sanhedrin convene. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. I think it's really easy for us to actually kind of look at these verses and maybe skip over them really quickly to get to what is about to happen. But I think we need to take just a moment and see what is happening here. The, the Sanhedrin, many of whom had already met the night before, they had gathered together. They had had this mock trial of Jesus. It was a real trial, but it was a complete farce. And they tried to find false witnesses. And eventually they get a, a true statement about Jesus that they condemn him for. Um, that he admits and fully says, yes, I, I am the Messiah. I am the, the one that the Psalms and Daniel talk about. And they tear their clothes and they say, he deserves death. So if they've already done that, why do they meet here? Well, they meet here because they were actually not allowed to make any sort of actual judgment during the night. So they have to meet again. And it seems from what it says here that it wasn't the entire Sanhedrin, they had this actual council, this, this governing body for the religious leaders of Israel. And while many of them were present the night before, they were not all present until this time. And so they meet in the morning. And why do they meet? They don't meet in order to fairly try Jesus again. They already have their verdict and what they want to do in mind. It says they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They weren't interested in a fair trial. They were interested in the death of Jesus. But they had a problem. If you remember what they convicted Jesus of the night before was blasphemy, was a religious, was a Jewish specific sin. And the problem is Jewish people at this time had no legal ability to put anyone to death. Remember that the Jewish people at this point were living under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And just a few years previous to this, the Roman Empire had stripped the Jewish leaders of their ability to put anyone to death. And so they meet and they gather together because giving Pilate, the governor, who we'll meet in just a minute... A religious sin and crime is something that he would never actually prosecute. He would never mete out justice for a religious dispute between people of the Jewish faith. And in fact, if you want to see an example of how the Romans simply would not deal with internal issues like this, go over to Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, you see Paul, he's in Corinth, and he's having this dispute with the Jews that that eventually goes before the proconsul of the city. And the city says, what are you doing here? Go away. This This is a deal for you guys to work out internally. And so we need to see here that the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish and religious leaders, as they're coming together, they are having to conspire. They are having to look and figure out, we want him dead. How do we do it? We want Jesus dead. We are tired of him being around, 
but we can't do it from what we think he's guilty of. So we need to figure something out. We need to figure out what we can present to Pilate in order to get him to convict him. And one of the very first things that they do is they bind Jesus. They want to bring him before Pilate and make him look, though he has shown no resistance to this point, they want to make him look like he is a threat. But the other thing they do is this. You see it as, we, as we'll get later, but they, they accuse him of being the king of the Jews because that's what Pilate asked. Are you really the king of the Jews? And we have to see that that is, not, that is not a wrong accusation for the Sanhedrin to say because number one, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And in fact, if we look at the prophecy that Jesus referred to last week that Nathan talked about, it was from Daniel. And Daniel chapter seven says this. It says to him, to the son of man that Jesus claimed himself to be, and to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, the dishonesty of what the Sanhedrin is doing here is because this very thing that they're going to accuse him before Pilate of is the very thing the Jewish people wanted. They wanted to have their own king ruling over them. They didn't want Rome ruling them anymore. They cared very much about the blasphemy. They didn't care about this part, and yet that's what they're going to present to Pilate. Because they know Pilate, and we'll talk more about his position later, but they know Pilate and his job is to keep peace. And one of the things that would not, uh, would not be a very peaceful thing is if all of a sudden a king claims the same authority as the emperor. And so that is what they're going to bring before Pilate. And I think right there we see our first response to sin. Our first response to sin that we see here in the Sanhedrin and what they're doing is to hide and to deceive. These Sanhedrin, they come together and they, they want Jesus dead, but they cannot get that what they want by telling the truth and by bringing fully out to Pilate what they want. And so they, they hide and they deceive and they want to trick. And yet we'll see the fact that this is recorded for us reminds us that Though they are trying to hide and deceive and pull the wool over Pilate's eyes, God sees. And so for you and I today, the same can be said for us. Many of us, our initial reaction is the same initial reaction to sin that Adam and Eve had. After they had sinned and God was walking in the cool of the day, they hid themselves. And so you and I, our temptation today when we are confronted with our sin is to hide, to deceive, to, to make it seem like we're doing the right thing when really we are sinful. And so our first application question is how, how do we hide our sin? Are we hiding our sin? We will not hide it from God and often we will not hide it from others. As we'll see, Pilate sees through their deception at the very end, towards the end of our passage. We cannot hide our sin from God, but we are all exposed to him who knows everything. Well, that was a lot for two verses, but let's move on to the betrayer's end. See in verse three, Judas steps back onto the scene. 
And when the action is changing, we need to notice that, that Matthew is taking a second to, to show us this scene. And if he's taking us away from what's going on with Jesus, we ought to pay attention to what is happening here. So he takes us away. He takes us to Judas, his betrayer. He sees that Jesus is condemned and he changes his mind. He changes his mind and he, he brings back the money to the, the chief priests and the elders who, by the way, gave him that money in the first place. And he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. First of all, we need to see when Judas changes his mind, we're not talking here about repentance. We're talking about Judas is, is seeing the fact his eyes are being opened at this point to the, to the part where he changes his mind. He thinks that, oh, that was wrong what I did. I, I need to not do that anymore. But, but that helps us to see that what Judas is really concerned about here is not so much that he's a sinner, but the fact that he sinned. Do you hear what he says? I have sinned, not I am a sinner, not I am a wretch, but I have sinned. I have sinned. He has not confessed or repented of the, of the very thing that the Bible tells us that Matthew has shown us was the reason that he did this in the first place, because he was a thief and he was greedy. And his sin was not just his external actions, but it came from within his very heart. And so that leads us to our second wrong response to sin is that we just want to treat the symptoms, but we don't want to treat the actual disease. That's what Judas is doing here. He's, he's talking to these chief priests and elders, which technically was the right thing for him to do as a, as a Jew. He was supposed to go to chief priests and elders. He was supposed to figure out how to deal with his sin, but, but he failed to grasp what Jesus had been teaching him way back on the Sermon on the Mount, that it's, it's from within that we are impure. It is the heart that matters before God, and the external action is just a symptom of who we are on the inside. Judas failed to listen to Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Judas is, is doing what we might do if we were having you know, symptoms of appendicitis and we, you know, we're doubled over in pain and we go to the doctor and we say, doc, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really hurting here. Can you just give me some ibuprofen and maybe something to help with the nausea? That is not what we ought to do if we think we have appendicitis. No, we need, we need the actual problem to be fixed. We don't need the symptoms to be fixed. We need to be healed from within before we are healed without. And the thing that we need to know today is that we are just like Judas in this way. There's not a single one of us in this room who is not a sinner from our very core. I think the problem is sometimes we like to think of our sin as this, this mud and muck that coats the outside of us and we just need to be washed clean of that. That's what Judas is thinking. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are not just dirty on the outside with our sin, but our sin comes from deep within us. We are, as we talked about in the catechism, both last week and this week, we are at birth sinners and in desperate need of a savior. 
And so the very wrong way for any of us to try and deal with our sin is to just think that it's our external actions and not realize that it's our heart that's desperately wicked and needs to be changed and saved. So brother, sister, friend, are we concerned about our external sin or are we concerned about our hearts? Well, Judas doesn't stop there. He, he continues. He says, I've, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now they, in a gross neglect of their uh, job as chief priests and elders, instead of helping Judas, they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Now, Judas should not have listened to them, but that's exactly what he does. He, he throws the pieces of silver into the temple. He departs and he hangs himself. Judas takes action. He, he feels like his, his sin that he's committed is something that he must atone for. So he, he casts away the very thing that, that he received for betraying Jesus. He casts it away from himself. He tries to, to get it away from him. And then he goes and he thinks he's going to deal with it by punishing himself. It's a, a horrific and terrible end and a tragic end to this man's life because he thinks that by his own actions and by what he is able to do, he's going to be able to atone for what he has done in betraying Jesus. And that is the third wrong response to sin is to try and deal with it ourselves or to try and buy our own bootstraps deal with our sin. Judas doesn't realize that he has committed a great and horrific sin, not just by betraying innocent blood, but he has betrayed the holy blood of the Holy One of God, of Jesus Christ himself. And even for us today, when we just think of our external sin, we can think about just how wrong or evil that thing was that we did, but we have to realize that each and every one of our sins is honestly just like Judas's sin in that each and every time we think we know better than God, each and every one of us is rebelling against a perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly loving God who cares deeply for us. And yet we over and over again, look at God and we say, I've got this figured out. I don't need you. That is what our sin is. And to be perfectly honest, when we sin and against an infinitely good and holy God, we deserve infinite wrath. And Judas thought that his very temporary punishing of himself would be enough to atone for his sin, but he needed something far greater than even his own death would bring about. He did wrong. And you and I need to know that no matter what we do, no matter what we think we can do to atone for our sin, we can never do good enough. Romans 3.20 says, by works of the law, by good things that we do, no one will be justified in God's sight. We are desperate sinners And again, like our catechism question today reminds us, 
The law is there so that we can see the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. Judas missed the point. He missed completely that he was not to atone for his sin himself, but he was to go to the very one he betrayed. And I want us just to think for a moment. Last week we, we saw Peter's betrayal, and now we look very much at Judas's betrayal. And if you think this morning that your sin, your rebellion against God is so horrific that he can never forgive you, can I just put before you that Peter's sin and Judas's sin were actually really, really similar? They both betrayed and abandoned Jesus, one for his own advancement and one for his own self-preservation. And yet, it is how they responded to their sin that leads Peter to be one that we look to as one redeemed. And Judas's wrong response for us to look at him as one to be pitied. Let's move on and look at the chief priests and the elders. First of all, again, see their gross negligence. They were supposed to be shepherds of the people of Israel. They were supposed to help them. And how do they respond to someone who needs to know how their sin is to be dealt with? And they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Judas is a tool to them and nothing more. They have completely and totally abandoned their commission to be the shepherds and the, and the priests to God for the people of Israel. And yet they do that, and then what do they do? He goes and hangs himself, and then the chief priests, they look at the pieces of silver on the ground, and they say, well, it's not lawful for us to put them into the treasury. This is blood money. You see what they're doing there. They're completely showing that what Jesus said about them in Matthew 23 is completely true. They're revealing their hypocrisy. Jesus said to them in, in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, the little things, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You are blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. These chief priests and leaders, they have completely abandoned the eternal soul that is in front of them to deal with it themselves. And yet they're concerned, oh, we can't do that. This is blood money. We can't put this into the treasury. We have to do something else with it. They are hypocrites. And so that's the fourth response to sin, wrong response to we sin. It's just putting on a show. That's all the Pharisees were doing. If you look later in Matthew 23, it's actually a little before. They say, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They were concerned about seeing, be seeing, being seen by outsiders as, as holy people, as people to be looked up to. And yet they cared nothing for the weightier matters. They cared nothing about the state of their hearts before God. And so the question for us this morning is, are we putting on a show? You know, I see most of your faces here every Sunday. This is the right place for all of us to be, 
but is this what we're trusting in when we stand before God one day? God, I was at church every Sunday. God, I, I, I made sure I tithed every time I was supposed to. I showed up to help volunteer. In fact, if we say that, that sounds a whole lot like what, Matthew con- or what Jesus condemned in Matthew 25. This is what I did. What, what did I not do? If we bring before God at the last day the things that we did to sh- put on a show for others and we don't bring a broken heart that said, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And so for you and I this morning, come, come to church, tithe, do all those things. But if you're counting on those things to save you, they will not. That is not a right response to the sin that lies deep within. It's just to put on a show for everybody else to see. God knows that from our very core, we are sinners and we need a savior. We ought not put on a show. We ought to be honest with one another. We ought to be willing to bring our sin out into the light so the Lord can heal it and he uses each other to help us. Are we putting on a show? The next scene as we, oh, not the next scene, sorry. The next thing that we need to look at is the fulfillment of the scriptures in the end of this scene. They took counsel, they buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And then the field had been called the field of blood to that day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price on him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. This is a a really actually difficult quote, but uh, first of all, we need to know that the quotation rules for them in in that time was a little bit different. What uh, Matthew is doing, he's actually taking several passages and squishing them together for homework. You can go look at them. It's Jeremiah 19, 1 through 13, Jeremiah 32, 9, and Zechariah 11, 7 through 14. That's homework. You can go and look at that. But what... Matthew is pointing out for us in this is number one, Jesus is being mistreated and thought of as worthless by both the people of Israel, the sheep, but also the shepherd. And if you go and look at those different passages, you'll see that the servants of the Lord are mistreated by the the sheep of Israel and also by its leaders. That is what he is trying to show us in this. But Here's one more thing that we need to remember, and we've pointed this out multiple times as we've gone through this Passion Week of Jesus. And even today, we're going to look, and all we are seeing is the wicked actions of men trying to get Jesus crucified and killed. And if, we're, if we can get lost in this and not remember that it is God who is sovereignly guiding all of this because the very purpose that he has in mind is for his son to be crucified and killed and to die on the cross and to be raised again. Matthew is reminding us in the midst of this most dark moment that even though it is dark, God is still in control. And when we struggle with this, we can always go back to Genesis 50, 20, when when Joseph is confronted by his brothers who are terrified that, that he's going to punish them. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are to this day. God, even in the midst of all of this evil and sinful actions of men is working his purpose out. 
And so we ought not lose that God is sovereign in the midst of all of these things. Well, now we'll move on to the, just briefly, an interaction between the governor and the king. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? That is what they, the, the chief priest, the, the, the elders would have brought. They would have said, this, is, this guy's claiming to be king. Pilate would have that. He, uh, he's in a, a kind of unique position in the Roman Empire. He's kind of a mix of a, a general, a sheriff, and a judge. And that position that he's in would have been put over difficult regions, regions that were prone to unrest within the Roman Empire. Because if there's anything the Roman Empire hated more than anything else is an uprising and riots and people to be out of control. And so he's in that position specifically to prevent things like that. And having an, an upstart king who would take the authority of the Roman emperor would be example A of what Pilate was there to prevent. But it says, even as we just have these brief verses of what's going on, and we see Jesus, he's, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. And then he's continually brought all these accusations against him. He answers nothing. And so Pilate, at the end of this, he's, a, he's amazed. And I think he's amazed because he sees there are all these claims of, of Jesus being this king and Messiah, and yet here he is in front of him. He's completely alone. He looks like a normal guy, and then he has nobody around him. He has no army to call. And Pilate, as we see, it, he completely sees through it. This guy, although he's wrong, he is the king, but he sees from an earthly standpoint, this guy isn't a king He's not, there's no way this carpenter from Nazareth is going to try and usurp the power of the emperor. And so he, he is amazed. And what we see as we continue on to the wicked crowd is that, is that Pilate does not think that Jesus deserves what they are talking, what they are accusing he, uh, him of. But though he is convinced that Jesus is innocent, he will not acquit him. He will not just release him. And so he, he, has, this, uh, he has this thing, what, what history tells us, and even if you look at the book of Luke, of, of how Pilate is described, he, he was a man that was not very good towards the Jews. Most of the Jews thought he was a terrible, terrible ruler. And so this uh, thing that he does where he releases a prisoner to the crowd is probably something he did just to appease the crowds. And so he thinks at this point, and he makes a gamble. And he gambles and he thinks, well, I think Jesus is innocent, um, but I'm, I'm not going to do this myself. He, he may be just trying to appease the Sanhedrin. Maybe he's trying to embarrass them before the crowd and, and have a crowd that completely negates what they're saying. But regardless, he's going to put these two men in front of the crowd and let them choose who is released. And that's where we get introduced to Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a, a notorious prisoner. Uh, people, that means he was well-known by all. And in fact, the, if we look at the other gospels, we'll see he was a, a rebel. He was an insurrectionist and he committed murder during what he was doing. And so he was well-known by the crowd and he, he's putting this option be, in front of them and saying, look, here, here's what you can do. You can have this guy who really hasn't done anything wrong. He's called himself the Messiah 
and, and he's, a, he's a righteous man as far as Paul. Or you can have this guy who, who quite literally has murdered people and has been a rebel. And so Pilate puts this gamble that he's making before the people. He also does it because his wife comes to him and they have nothing to do with that righteous man. And so he puts this in front of the people and yet the gamble fails. The gamble fails. The chief priests and the elders are persuading the crowd and they're getting him to ask for getting them to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Pilate tries to protest, what shall I do with Jesus? They want him to be crucified. Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And the nail in the coffin, Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning. He saw the one thing that could get him to lose his job. There's a riot coming about, unrest, all the things that his job description says he was supposed to control and yet he is losing control. And so he does something that is actually not a Roman tradition, but is a Jewish tradition. He brings water and he says, my hands are clean of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And this is our fifth response to sin. It is the blame game. I'm innocent, says Pilate. I'm innocent. I didn't do it. You guys see to it yourselves. Again, same blame game that has been happening since Genesis 3. What did Adam say? Well, this wife that you gave me. What did Eve say? It was the serpent who deceived me. This is the response that we often have to sin. We, I, I, it's not me. I, I'll blame anybody else for my sin. No, no, God, it's not, it's not my fault that I'm this way. It's the way, it's the family that I came from or it's, or it's who you put in my family. My kids, uh, God, they're frustrated. Any of you kids ever frustrated your parents? We can't say that. We can't, as parents, say, God, I'm sinning because you gave me frustrating kids. That's not, that's not what we can do. Our sin is our own, and no matter how much Pilate says, it's not my, it's not my responsibility. Yet, how does our passage end? It doesn't say, then the, then the Jews released Barabbas, and it doesn't say the Jews scourged Jesus. It doesn't say the Jews delivered him to be crucified. No, Matthew, writing under the holy, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts it all on Pilate. Then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas. And he, Pilate, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You and I can play the name game all that we want, the blame game, but God will not be deceived. And so are you, brother, sister, friend, blaming someone else for your sin? Well, finally, the crowd accepts responsibility. He washes his hands. He tries to, to say, this is not my responsibility. Instead of protesting, see what the crowd says. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. His blood be on us and on our children. Judas was trying to get the blood off of him. The crowd willingly embraces it. We'll take it. We will take the blood of this innocent man on ourselves. Now, one thing we need to know is this one passage has been used as justification for great acts of evil throughout 
to in the last 2,000 years. This has nothing to do with the fact that Jews rejected Jesus. It has much more to do with the fact that there were people of any race. This is how they rejected Jesus. Any, anybody who is rejecting Jesus is saying this, his blood be on me. His blood be on me. And number one, the, the, any, anyone who uses this as a justification needs to remember that even if it's for someone who is rejecting Jesus, Jesus has never told Christians to defend his honor by violence. Never has Jesus said that. What did Jesus say to do to our enemies? To love our enemies. So that's just a side note. That's for free. But we also need to see in this the last wrong response to sin, and that's embracing sin. Let a murderer go instead of a righteous man. We don't care. We'll take that on. Put it on our children too. We don't care. We don't know much about this Jesus, but we've had the chief priests and elders have told us, yeah, fine. We know he's a murderer, Barabbas, so we'll let him go. We'll take the blood of this innocent man. That's fine. Is that not what we may do from time to time, embrace our sin? Has any of us ever thought in my mind, I know that's what God's word says, but let me guarantee you that the anything that you do after that but is embracing your sin. I know God has said I ought not to look at that online, but you are embracing your sin. I know that's not what God's word says, but I'm gonna do it anyway. That is embracing our sin. Romans 1.32 says very clearly about those who commit these sins, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Are there ways in which you are saying now, God, I know that's what your word says, but, but I'm gonna do it anyway. God, I know that's what your word says, but I think I know better than you. And so I'm just going to do this. And so brothers, sisters, and friends, we've seen throughout our text today so many wrong ways to respond to sin. But what is the right way to respond to sin? And we'll close with this. Have you guys seen it as we've looked at it? Matthew's hinted at this throughout our entire passage today. He's mentioned over and over the innocence of the blood of Jesus. That is the right way to respond to our sin is to bring it to the one who is standing here and the only thing he has said the whole time is you have said so. The only right response to our sin is to know that we need a savior and to realize that God has sent that savior in his son, Jesus just a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus himself say, here is how you deal with your sin. As he gave the first Lord's Supper, he says this, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus' blood shed for sinners is the way that we respond to sin, saying, I cannot save myself. I am wretched to my very core. I need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. I quote the third verse of it as well too much, so I'm gonna go ahead and quote some other songs for us. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my savior on that cursed tree. There's a reason that I chose the main point today to be what it is. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Brothers, sisters, friends, if you have come to the point where you know you need to be cleansed of your sin, not just your actions on the outside, but deep from within, you go to the one who shed his blood on Calvary. One more song, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Friend, are you a sinner? You are. You need to be saved. Jesus shed his blood for you and rose on the third day that you could put your faith and hope in him. Christian, are you weighed down by the weight of another week gone by where you have failed yet again? Look to Jesus who shed his blood for you. His blood is enough to cover your sin and my sin. I want to close this morning with a brief passage from Revelation. Revelation chapter 9, if you want to go in the Bible in front of you, it's on page 1032. Revelation 9, 7, excuse me, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. I will get it out. God's word says this, After this I looked, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For those of us who come to Jesus in faith, we are washed clean from within and without. And we will be his people forever and he will be our God. Let's pray.